Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Somebody's awake. Uh, it's good to be with you. My name is Dirk. I'm on staff here, and uh, I do have notes this week. And band, you can stay seated for now. <laughs> Give your legs a rest. Um, let me check that feedback. Uh, all right, so continuing in this chapter um, that Donovan was up here preaching through last week, we kind of have a two-parter. So if you have that open, Isaiah 54 on your phone or a hard copy, what you see is there's really two halves to this covenant of peace that God gives. This is his new covenant that he's bringing in to his people coming right off uh, the tail end of the suffering servant. So there is now this new life, there is this new reality for God's people because of what the suffering servant has done. So what Donovan covered last week was this passion that God has for you. As uncomfortable maybe some of the language was, it's the reality that God has towards you, his people. He starts off with that first half of the passage with saying, O barren one, calling you Barren, one who has nothing, there's no fruit, not seeing anything uh, of worth happening. Um, he says, I will show you my everlasting love, and you will be fruitful. If we get into the second half, it gets into what God supplies for his people. So going from O barren one to now this half, he says, O afflicted one, the one who has experienced turmoil and we're very familiar with God's people in the history there that there's plenty of turmoil that we've, we see throughout all of Scripture and, and beyond in the last couple thousand years and even today. And so what he's getting at here, what God is getting at here, is there is a heritage for his people, for you, his people, and it comes through the vindication of his servants. He vindicates you. So what does it mean to be vindicated, right? It's, it's kind of a cool word, like we don't really use it often, at least I don't. Um, but in essence, it means to be cleared of blame, to be justified. Um, back in my BC days, as I call them, before I knew Jesus, um, the summer before my senior year, I ran with a group, and man, there was just, uh, throughout a whole summer, we would just get into loads of trouble. We would go around vandalizing different kinds of property, breaking into old school buildings, stealing stuff. Just It, it began to uh, amount to a lot, a lot of stuff. And eventually, it kind of culminated with vandalizing our high school and got caught. And it wasn't just for that issue. We had to go into the police station and everything got listed up right in front of us. And then we were even asked about some other things. There was some murder in a cemetery. I'm like, no, we had nothing to do with that. Um, but all that to say is we, we were kind of facing the heat. And what happened was um, we ended up getting cleared of all consequences. Um, I was 17 at the time, so I wasn't sure, like, man, am I going to have to go to juvie for a little bit? Or what's that going to look like? But everyone that we really sinned against dropped charges. It was never explained to me why. I, I knew some of these people. They never brought it up to me later, um, but we were cleared of all consequences. I think, well, I had to do like 
a few hours of community service by cleaning up the uh, football field. Big deal. So we accepted blame, but we're shown mercy in that. But, but God, in his vindication of his children, goes further and not only clears us of consequences, but actually justifies us who are not like him. Justifies people who are guilty. So he vindicates you. Right, so I think we kind of understand this problem. And, and the last chapter with the suffering servant highlights this, that, that Jesus has borne our griefs, he's, he was pierced for our transgressions, he dies in our place, he's crushed for our iniquities and bears the sins of many. So it's pretty simple to see that there's issues that we have that are in the world throughout history that the Son of God dies for. We see this in Israel, and with the book of Isaiah in particular, we've covered a lot in this last year, but in, in essence, short list, this is how God's people have lived this out. There's been plenty of injustice and oppression, rebellion, worshiping demons, leading to plenty of brokenness and idolatry and shame and judgment from God. And it continues with us today. In a lot of ways, I don't really have to alter the list. Um, it's hard to really ignore the brokenness, the shame that we experience within ourselves, within our church, and within the entire world. And I, I think if you don't see that, you really have to be a hermit. Like, you really have to be disconnected, not just from social media, but from all kinds of media in general, but even relationships, to really think there's no problem, especially within yourself. I mean, we, I think we know ourselves well enough to say there are plenty of things that we are, or at least have been, ashamed of. So whether it's sexual history, or addictions, poor choices, like if that was uh, listed up on the screen behind me with your profile picture next to it, you would tell me, yeah, you would squirm a little bit, at least. But we also long for it to be made right. We don't just often sit in the shame. There is this part of us that wants to make it right, or at least wants someone to make it right. And so an easy way to see that is within our, our literature and within our film. And so often different things we, we can use. I mean, I have Disney Plus, so I can kind of go through the whole list. Like pretty much every movie is, is feeling this, whether it's something with Marvel or Star Wars or Lord of the Rings, or particularly with Terminator. And I bring this up because I was listening to an Elon Musk interview and this came up, and I'm thinking like, wow, this is a lot deeper than initially we think, just robots going around killing people. But it's a twofold example because there's the story of the movies themselves, but also how many movies have been made. I think there's, right, six movies now, and the one that came out last year um, was a retcon, and I'll explain that. It was a retcon to essentially replace the previous three as if they didn't exist because not many people liked them as well. It was to make the story better, right? And so a retcon, you can see it in different TV shows um, or movies. It, it's new information um, that changes the interpretation of the story or the plot or the narrative to make it better. So this character, oh, he's gone this season? Oh, no explanation. Oh, it's a different plot. And, and that's what happened with, with Terminator. And so anyways, now that you know what retcon means... The series itself, the movies themselves, really, man, one and two are, are great. But it's all about making poor choices um, uh, right. So essentially, if you're not familiar with the series, it's about humanity 
getting to a point in, in our development and technology that we know there are external threats, like the U.S. thinking we have external threats throughout the globe that need to be dealt with, we need to protect ourselves, right? Not a bad thing. So what happens is they develop a technology, an artificial intelligence, to essentially protect the United States from threats, external. And so when they turn on the AI, which is called Skynet, Skynet goes into the system, right? Goes worldwide and is there identifying threats and disabling them and preventing any uh, big disasters from happening. Well, the thing is, Skynet goes everywhere. It's in every system, it's in every device, everything you could think of. It's the ultimate big brother. And so humanity sees this, and like, this is kind of a problem because it's everywhere. And so humanity then goes to essentially turn it off and destroy Skynet. Skynet picks up on that and identifies humanity as the enemy. And so up go all the nukes and pretty much scorched earth, dystopian future. And so it's man versus machine for the whole series, for the future. And so this, this whole point of the series is to now there's time travel technology, and they're sending people back in time in order to correct what's been wronged, to avoid this dystopian future. And it's with every movie, there's time travel, like something went wrong. We have to redo it. We have to redo it. And it's all about the essence. It's fighting against the machine we created with the purpose of peace. There was a, a good purpose with that, but... It went wrong, and so it shows really a bigger issue that our attempts in general, personally, communally, just alone lead to some kind of destruction, some kind of strife, some sort of pain. And so even outside of science fiction, we long for this vindication in the world. And so, I mean, wrongly, we look for this in politics. Now, I'm not saying you, don't, you can't get involved in politics, but there's a wrong way to do it. That being with how we devote ourselves and how we view certain elections. And so I think our hunt for vindication really pops up not every two years, like with midterm elections, but really every four. And I think we, again, experienced this in the last year and the four before that and how tense everything was. Because there's this this thing within us where we want whoever's voted into the presidential office to be our proxy, right? We want them to be the one to make things right. And so we view if the other candidate or one of the other candidates, there's other parties, if one of those other candidates win, then it stays broken. There's not going to be any progress. There's not going to be any vindication. But I think if we remind ourselves really with a gospel lens, it's been broken since the beginning. And our hope cannot be within a candidate or party or anything like that. Not saying we don't get involved with, you know, policy and things like that. I mean, I'm not going to push this from the front, which I can't. But there is a wrong way of going about it. Or even thinking about vindication in a right way. Um, human trafficking, fighting against human trafficking we see injustice, we see cruelty. And many of us, even with some of our members in Cedar Rapids, are part of an organization that take 
action to fight against it and to get women out of that and into uh, normal life to experience renewal and to experience the gospel. And this is a great effort. I'm not bashing this. But even that multi-billion dollar industry covering every continent, it's still just a small part of an entirely broken world. So what if you fix that problem? You, you have a long list of things to accomplish after that, if you can even accomplish it. But see, God has a solution that he meets in response to all the injustice, to all of our brokenness, and that is a good thing because he has the best sense of justice and the power for holistic change. See, it's one thing to, to think that we have justice, to think that maybe you personally have a sense of justice, to, to discern between right and wrong, but you don't have the power to actually enact change in yourself, let alone out there. But God has both. He has both the justice and the power. So this, this injustice that we feel when we, when we witness things on the news or in front of us, to know that's actually a good thing and that's within our design because God put it there in order for us to not just try it on our own, but to actually look to him as the source of that because he uses it the right way. And chiefly, he does this by justifying sinners. He justifies people like you and me. And so we see that in the death of Jesus and the suffering servant in chapter 53, that it's his blood that, can't, that cleanses us from shame, and it's his blood that covers us and actually declares us justified. And Paul writes in Romans 5, 9, Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? And it gets into our cool theological topic or phrase for the day, to dig more into, which is called imputed righteousness. And we talk about it, uh, I think, often. Maybe not call it that, but this, this idea of imputed righteousness is God's righteousness being given to us as a free gift so that we are seen by the Father as righteous, covered with the works of Jesus, because we can't do it or earn it. Paul gets after this in 2 Corinthians 5 where he says, For our sake he made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's good news. That's the gospel that, that Jesus would die in our place to give us justification, to cleanse us, to get rid of shame, to heal us, to bring uh, reconciliation between our relationship with us and God and with one another. That's great news. But what we get to in this passage today is that God goes even further to bless you. He blesses his servants. What does he give? He gives an inheritance to both you and me. And so, let's go down the list. He says, you who were once afflicted are now going to be made beautiful. You will be a city adorned in beauty and splendor. You who were once tossed by every wave of doctrine in the world of chaos, children of God, the church, are going to be taught by the Lord and have great peace. You who were once lashed by the storms are now secure in his righteousness. He's going to establish you in that. You who were once ruled by fear are going to be far from oppression. 
far from fear and far from terror. You who were once living in constant strife with others against you, those who stir up strife against you will fall. You who once lived in fear of what the enemy would do to you, no weapon fashioned against you will succeed. You who were once struggling to find words to speak against the lies of the enemy of the world against you, you shall refute every tongue. We could do a sermon on every single one of these, and it would be great. But we don't have time for that. It's, it's his blessings to you and me. It's what he promises to you and me. But the question I think we wrestle with when we hear this is, when? When does he give this? Because I think we've already pulled examples in our mind, maybe from today or this last week, where I did not experience that promise. I did not experience peace. I couldn't refute lies. When does he give this? This gets into one of the main themes of Scripture, what we see in God's promises, which is this already, not yet theme. When you look at God's promises, there is an already and not yet theme. Not yet meaning the promise in in many ways in its pure fulfillment will occur at the future inheritance, which is in its fullness in the new heavens and new earth. So if you go to the book of Revelation, the last few chapters, this is what you see. You see everything made new. This earth that you see, the heavens that you see, it's all going to be made new, redone. No sin, no temptation, no sickness, no chronic illness, no shame, no evil, but now beauty and glory and peace. We will see Jesus face to face. Then there's also the already, the current, present situation. Some of these things are obvious. Like, once you started following Jesus, you got connected to a really good community in which you experience peace sometimes. In that life, in this life, you experience maybe from day to day, week to week, year to year, a distaste for your sin and the past life in which you once lived. But some things are also less visible, a little bit more hidden, and, and those being like your thoughts your thought life, slowly becoming more and more like Jesus. But there's still tension. I think you still kind of feel that that tension that comes with it. And, And really, it comes to afflictions. When there's strife, when there's oppression, when there's terror coming, right? And I think we have some really easy examples apart from our own lives, right? Look at Jesus. Look at Paul. You look at missionaries in the last 2,000 years. What do you do with that? Well, (sighs) do the weapons formed against them succeed? In many ways, we would say yes. People were literally killed. People were literally persecuted. But let's look at Jesus first. So in the death of Jesus, being crucified, Satan and humanity wanted his life and ministry to end but they actually failed because he was resurrected, 
And his ministry from that exploded and covered the rest of the earth. Like, it was necessary that he died so that many would live. It goes down to that definition of what we mean by succeed. In the short term, sure, Jesus was dead for a couple days, but his ministry wasn't. And he came up from the grave and radically changed history, radically changed the people who are in this room today. Look at Paul. Same for his sufferings. What happened in result of his sufferings? Well, he endured. He was humbled. He preached the gospel to uh, prisoners and jailers. He worshiped the Lord, and he kept planting churches. In his mindset, in his posture, in his worldview of what Jesus was doing within his life is that the afflictions actually bolstered his efforts. He preached the gospel even more because of persecution. Or if you even looked at how he persecuted the church before he became a Christian, specifically in Acts 8, what he did was, he, like after Stephen died and then uh, the persecution went out to arrest Christians, what happened? Christians scattered where? Over the rest of the earth. And what did those Christians do? Live out the gospel. Because of Paul's persecution of the church, the gospel actually spread. It was accomplishing God's purposes. Or if you look at missionaries, many have died for the faith. Many. Some of you maybe have seen this movie. It's called End of the Spear. Maybe you're familiar with it. Application number one, go watch this movie. It's really good. Um, it came out, I think, early 2000s. But the movie is, is based on the real story of, of the lives of people who were bringing the gospel to the Horani Indians in South America. Um, you probably recognize the names. It involved Jim and Elizabeth Elliot and Nate Saint, among others. And the story goes like this, that they were developing... Um, connections, relationships with this tribe. The men went in first to, to build some of the first in-person connections, and what, what tragically happened was that the tribe speared the five men and died. And um, what happened next was is just really astounding. This whole story is just amazing. What happened next was, instead of the families of those men going home um, counting losses, and just taking care of their kids. The wives and the children went in to the tribe to live among the tribe, among the men who had just killed their husbands. It also includes, or it involves this tribe member who's kind of a higher-up warrior. His name is Minkaye, who specifically killed Nate Saint. Minkaye through time, begins to build a relationship with um, Steve Saint, who is Nate's son. And what happens over time, over the years, is the gospel is believed. And, I mean, it's just beautiful the way that the gospel is contextualized to this tribe because their tribe has a culture of spearing. And so, in terms of retribution and revenge, they're spearing and how they communicate how Jesus was the one who was speared, but he did not spear back. He did not curse. And it opens up a door for the gospel, and the whole tribe believes. Years later, 
Mingaye um, talks to Steve and um, after a long time confesses that he killed his father and asks Steve to kill him in return. Gives him the spear and there's this scene where Steve has the spear right at Minkaye's chest and he's struggling like the pain, the lack of a father he's had for his whole life but Minkaye also served as a, as a father to him and I mean, the gospel just comes through where he says, Steve says to Minkaye, no one took my father's life. He gave it. And Minkaye is just like undone and just bawling. And it gives us this big perspective of the Lord, what he was doing over this whole story in this situation. Minkaye killing Nate Saint and the tribe killing all those men didn't succeed in their purpose because it actually brought the gospel to the tribe. And through that, Jesus redeemed murderers and he brought an end to a culture of killing. It succeeded in God's purpose. It's really his sovereignty in verse 16. Right, because the Lord has created the smith, the weapon, for its purpose, and the ravager. But no weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed. But in light of that story, just how how we approach life and how we approach the promises of God and what they should naturally compel us to do and the lack of what we feel we need to do on a daily basis, don't you just wish that you just had that mindset all the time? The mindset that those women had in response to affliction, knowing that no weapon formed against them shall succeed, and so they go in. Don't you want that heart posture? To show mercy and grace. I think we do when we're sober-minded. I think we do when we actually see Jesus for who he is. But we waver, right? We go, we go back and forth. And maybe even when I tell that story, you're like, oh, no, absolutely not. I would not do that. But for all of us, where we need to be, and I think where Jesus is leading us to be, is that we need to be renewed. We need to constantly be renewed. Not just justified, but changed. And to see not just the future inheritance, that, I mean, that's great, like, We need to have that in mind, but we need to also have in mind the present inheritance that is here for us, which is the process of renewal, which is the mission of this church, to fight for joy. What does it mean? It's not just some abstract three words that it's it's a good idea, but it's a tangible way of manifesting life with the Spirit. Because we see the gap, new creation, and now... It's not a mistake that God made. It's actually his plan to bring us more and more intimately close to him and renewed and not just vindicated but renewed in a lifelong journey, a lifelong journey walking with the Spirit, the Spirit who indwells God's people. We lack lack the joy. I lack the joy. 
I lack the joy in prepping for this sermon. I lack the joy of waking up this morning. I lack the joy having to wake up in the middle of the night to, to hold my son and to get him back to sleep. We lack the joy, but Jesus is the source. We know that. But how do we actually receive the joy from him? Like, how are we actually transformed? How practical can we get? I think we need to zoom out first. In this, what we see in Scripture as key to transformation and key to renewal and change is that we become what we behold. We become what we behold. Whatever we behold, whether it is uh, our spouse, whether it's this church, whether it's things in the world, whether it's money or all that, we become like those things. And if they're incomplete, we are going to suffer. But if we behold the Lord, we become like him. If we behold the Lord, we begin to see that he is the wellspring of life and the source of joy and unending satisfaction. And in that, we understand more of his passion for you. Like Ezekiel 16, oh my gosh. I wish we knew that and accepted that and we're not weirded out by that all the time. And that's how the Lord sees us. That he not just loves us. I think we get that and we can recite that and and believe that even though we feel distant, but to know that he actually likes you. No, he actually enjoys you as you are. I mean, he's taking you to to future glory, and he's making you more like him, but he actually likes you. He cares about you. And so today, and last week, understanding his passion for you, but today, for us to really understand the way that he loves and likes us, how that looks like him adorning us with beauty as we behold him. When we see him, we are becoming more like him and covered in his splendor and beauty. So we see this in the New Jerusalem. You look at the last couple chapters of Revelation, like it's over the top. It's reflected here in this passage with all the the jewels and gold. It's, it's, It's over the top. You see streets of gold that are transparent. Like how does that happen? You see whole gates entering the city made out of one pearl. Like there's nothing like that we can see here on earth. And, and how we can see that now is that it's this direct parallel with marriage. Paul says in, in Ephesians 5, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. That's the way marriage is supposed to function. It's supposed to point to him in the way that he sees and treats all of us. Or even Psalm 34, 5, what David says, he says, those who look to him, those who look to the Lord are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. That's a present truth. What does it mean to be radiant? What does it mean to be filled? It's to behold him. To, to have a joy and a peace and compassion that the world has questions like, how can you love like that? How can you serve like that? How can you react to those situations within your family and within the world? 
And we have the answer in the gospel. We have the answer in Jesus. And that's the answer he's giving us to give to them. Finally, in 2 Corinthians 3, 17, 18, that's the, the center of it. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So, application, watch some movies, be adorned in splendor. But really, we need to figure out how to be consistently disarmed by God's love. Disarmed by his love and beauty. Like, you want to grow? I I think if I were to ask all of you, if you wanted to grow, you would say yes. And you would have at least one, I would hope at least one or a few ideas of what that would look like. Only be a, a, a better leader and servant in, in relation to the gospel, not, not everything else. But if you want to grow in the Lord, what do you think it means? Like circumventing a relationship with him, circumventing intimacy with him, even though he's the giver, he's the provider. If you want to grow in any way, shape, or form in the Lord, you have to be undone by his love and commitment to you to finish what he started in you. To be undone by his spirit coming in and adorning you with beauty. He's promised to do this in you. But will you look to him Will you trust him? Will you abandon all other securities, all other things to find satisfaction in and pleasure in, and surrender? Surrender it all. I want to stop going through ministry and life as if I have some sort of control over it. I want to stop living out of the flesh Don't you? I I don't want there to be strife in our body. I don't want there to be strife in our marriages. I want us to have a vision of love and compassion for our city and compassion for where we work and the, the people we are around with. It starts here. It starts with being intimate with the Lord, being undone by his love, and being built up into more of Christ's image. That's where it is. That's where we start. Not with books about how to just be a better Christian. Not with books about um, just how to pray better, how to read your Bible better. Although those are great. It starts with you and the Lord. And you don't have to go far. His Spirit is within you. If you believe, His Spirit is here. Complete, 24-7 access all the time. But will you Surrender. And with that, we're going to just linger in that and, and respond. And I want this to be a hopeful thing, not me berating you like, you need to surrender, you need to surrender, although you do, but it's something that you need to get with the Lord about. It's something that you need to be with Him. Um, I, I, I don't 
We don't need tangents of other people just speaking into it all the time. It just needs to be you and the Lord right now. Um, and so we're going to give you that time to pray. Um, we're going to give you time to, to give. Uh, we'll have a slide up for that, the giving option. We'll, we're going to give you time for communion. And, and really, like, how you get with the Lord, one easy way is to remember that sacrifice that he gave for you. Remember his body broken and his blood spilled on the cross. It was for you so that you would be vindicated, so that you would be made new, and that you would go closer and closer and walking with him every day for the rest of your life. That's what he purchased for you. And if you believe God has is, is really spoken to you in a way this morning that is, is worthy of sharing with the body, Daniel's going to be up here and bring it to him and we'll discern whether that's for the body this morning. And then we're going to sing, guys. But what are we going to sing from? Is it from a place of life and peace? As, as weak as we might feel this morning, is it from that place of, of I know that he is the source and I'm longing, I'm yearning, I'm, I'm fighting for joy as I sing, that even though I struggle to believe the lyrics on the screen, I am believing that he will bring this to come. I know he's done it in the past, but I know he will also do it today. I know he can do it tomorrow and the next day and the next day. And so for us to, to know that God, he's committed to you, he has given you an inheritance to walk in for every day for the rest of your life. There's nothing better than that. Let's pray. Jesus, we, we long for you to come and make all things new. We long for the, the future promises to come today. We wish that the future was today. And we pray, come Lord, soon. We ask, Lord, that in this time you would strengthen us. Give us eyes to see your love. Give us eyes to see the promises that you've given that aren't just abstract ideas. They're not just good thoughts, good vibes. They are tangible manifestations of your Spirit. And you come in the moment and still our hearts. Fill us with peace. Lift our eyes to see your beauty. Fill our hearts with your spirit and give us the strength to endure this life. So we ask, Spirit, that you would fill your children this morning. Fill us with, with strength Fill us with boldness. Fill us with peace. Reassure us of the things that you've promised us. Lord, I pray that you would give us, give, us, give this church vision for this, of what this, this intimate life with you would look like. Walking in this inheritance as your servants. Or as even you've called us, Jesus, no longer servants, but friends. You call us friends. 
And you don't withhold good gifts. You don't give us snakes when we ask for good things, Father. So Lord, we ask to come in power to build us up, to give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and to know that we have been called by your name and you chose us to bear fruit of the inheritance that it would multiply into a great, abundant harvest. Lord, bring us to surrender. Whatever it is that's holding us back, whatever it is that's an obstacle in the way, surrender it. Bring us to surrender it now. In your name, Jesus. Amen.